You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everyone. Peter Maravellis here, hoping this finds you all doing well. This evening's program is called Dreaming of Teresa Hakyung Cha, an appreciation. It is being brought to you by City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation in conjunction with the Asian American Writers Workshop and the University of California Press. We are commemorating the life and work of the poet, filmmaker, and multidisciplinary Korean American artist, Teresa Hakchun Cha. Today's event is also a celebration of two recently published books, University of California Press, in partnership with Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive, have produced the restored edition of Ms. Cha's book, Dikti, which is a foundational text of modern Asian American literature. Also, the book Exile and Temp Mort, Selected Works. This volume contains work spanning the period between 1976 and 1982, bringing together Ms. Cha's previously uncollected writings and text-based pieces with images. These two remarkable volumes present us with a stunning selection of Ms. Cha's work, offering the reader a full range of the work of a major figure in late 20th century art and literature. Known amongst artists, writers, and poets and filmmakers, Ms. Cha's work has been deserving of a wider following. And it's our hope here at City Lights that with the reprinting of these two seminal books, the world will really come to better appreciate this important artist. University of California Press, together with UC Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive, have performed a great service to the community by bringing her work to the public eye and generating a higher profile for her work. Now, before we begin, as is customary at the beginning of each event, I would like to announce that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We would like to take this moment to acknowledge those who have come before us as stewards of the land and give an offering of respect. Moderating this evening's event will be Linda Norton. Linda Norton is a visual artist and writer and educator with a long career in book publishing, archives, libraries, and oral history. She was the acquisitions editor at the University of California Press, founding the New California Poetry Series and publishing books by such authors as Rebecca Solnit, Lynn Higinian, Alan Lomax, amongst others. She is the author of the book, The Public Gardens, Poems and History. She teaches at the Atlantic Technological University in Ireland. Also joining her tonight is Brandon Shimoda. He is the author of six books of poetry, most recently, The Desert from Song Cave, also Evening Oracle from Letter Machine Editions, which received the William Carlos Williams Award from the Poetry Society of America. His memoir and book of mourning, The Grave on the Wall, was published by City Lights in 2019 and received the 2020 Penn Open Book Award. He is also the co-editor with Tom Donovan of To Look at the Sea is to Become What One Is, an Atel Adnan reader. Also joining us tonight is Min Sun Jun. Min Sun Jun is a curator based in New York City. She curated the exhibition Teresa Hakung Cha, Audience Distant Relative, at the CCS Bards Hessel Museum. She is serving as a curatorial assistant at the Whitney Museum of American Art. Also on the bill tonight is Christina Yang. Christina Yang is a curator, scholar, administrator, and educator. She served as Deputy Director of Engagement and Curator of Education at the Williams College Museum of Art following a 14-year tenure at the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York City. 
She's previously held positions at the Kitchen and Queen's Museum. She's currently leading art curation at the BAMPFA. So we're going to, we were to have Reese Williams joining the panel tonight, unfortunately was not able to make it, we regret to say. Um, as mentioned earlier, tonight's event is being co-sponsored by the Asian American Writers Workshop, which is a national literary nonprofit dedicated to publishing and incubating work by Asian and Asian diasporic writers, poets, and artists. Since their founding in 1991, they've provided a countercultural literary art space in the intersection where migration, race, and social justice come to meet. To find out more about them and their good work, we'll be posting a link with which you can learn more. So to open the evening, I would like to welcome now our moderator, Linda Norton, to get things started. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, City Lights, Asian American Writers Workshop, and at the press uh, at University of California Press, Catrice. Lassie and Naomi Schneider. I worked there for 15 years and um, I appreciate them inviting me as editor emeritus to host this event, to moderate it. Um, and I also want to acknowledge Reese Williams, Larry Rinder, the Cha family, and the late BAM PFA curator, Connie Llewellyn, um, who was the one who brought the reprint of Dictate to me. Um, as I've mentioned to the presenters here, I have been thinking about small presses while thinking about this event. Tanam Press, uh, which did Dicte in 1982, and Third Woman Press, which did the 1994 edition, um, and also uh, did a, a book about uh, Cha's work in 1994 that brought her to a wider audience. Um, I do have some personal connections to this history, including a fascination with Korea that goes back to the Christmas cards my father received every year from a man who had worked in the U.S. Army barracks where my father lived in South Korea after he was drafted into the U.S. Army when he was 21 years old. And um, I want to mention Kathy Park Hong's book because that really tells the story of the imperialism and warmongering and capitalism behind that little squib that I just shared. And I appreciate her chapter about Cha. And I also remember going to a Village Voice party in the Puck building when I managed the New York office of the University of California Press. It was just after a friend had told me about Cha's murder there. Um, and uh, there are many people now writing about Cha, but especially I'm thinking tonight of Elaine Castillo's How to Read Now and R.H. Kwan's recent New Yorker article. And thank you to my friend Young Sue for mentioning to me the marathon reading of Dictate that's, um, that the Whitney presented with um, Wendy Subway. Um, it's on YouTube and uh, I think some people in this audience might like to see it. And now um, at UC Press, I was poetry and reprints editor. So this was um, in my wheelhouse. So I'm going to let the speakers start and I'm looking forward to hearing all of them. And we'll start with Brandon, then Christina, um, and then Minson. And I won't interrupt it. They can just flow from one to another. And you can put uh, questions or comments in the chat. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Um, 
extremely grateful, humbled, and terrified to be here. I'm going to begin by invoking Reese Williams, the founder of Tanam Press, which published the original edition of Teresa Hakyung Cha's Dictate in 1982. Partly because, as Peter said, Reese was going to join us tonight, but could not, but mostly because of an image that he shared in talk he gave at the Berkeley Art Museum in 2018, an image that uh, has been resonating in my mind for the past few weeks. This is from Reese's talk. I remember the morning that Teresa arrived at my loft to begin work on preparing the page layouts for Dictate. She had an absolutely clear and complete vision of all the visual and typographic details of the book. The color she had decided upon was a dark maroon. My mind wanders for a bit immersed in this color. In those days, in lower Manhattan, it was possible to see an undulating wave of this dark maroon color moving down the sidewalks of First Avenue. Tibetan monks had been sent to New York and were living in temporary spaces in the city. One million people had been killed on the Tibetan plateau. 6,000 monasteries were burned to the ground. 100,000 people crossed over high mountain passes in the snow to escape into India. From their refuge in Dharamsala, Tibetan leaders in a gambit to resettle their culture were sending groups of monks in their dark maroon robes to Europe and to the United States. At this point in his talk, Reese paused. Maybe the image of Tibetan monks in dark maroon robes and the thought of Cha responding to the image, the murder, the exile, the undulating wave of monks by memorializing them on the cover of her book was making his mind wander for a bit immersed in the memory. I remember my first encounter with Teresa Hakyung Cha. It was in Translating Mom, a book of poetry by Kathy Park Hong. It was Hong's first book, published in 2002, and it begins with an epigraph from Dictate. She mimics the speaking that might resemble speech. I read those words in 2002. I was working in a bookstore in North Carolina. I remember looking up from Hong's book and going out into the shelves to see if we had dictate. I remember not knowing in which section to look because I did not know what the book was. And I remember for some reason not looking it up to find out. I was lost. I wanted, I guess, to be lost. I do not remember whether or not I found dictate, only that I was looking for it because I do not remember when I first read it. And even though I have since then, 20 years later, read Dictate innumerable times, I still feel like I am about to read it, that I am in fact still looking. This sensation is related, I think, to Cha's art, its innumerable and profound formal qualities, and especially to the innumerable and profound conditions that created them. War, for example, occupation, the enforcement and control, the perversion of one's relationship to language, to land, to one another, to oneself, partition, for example, fracture, refraction, displacement, migration, erasure, the witness of a child to the making and unmaking of their mother's identity, for example, conditions 
unbroken, yet constantly refreshing themselves so that the groundedness one might feel or assume of their present experience disintegrates into a mirage or a membrane through which the subject disappears, is constantly disappearing, the filtration of all of these conditions through art, the question of how to compose, how to compose a work of art and a body of work that meets these conditions, how to construct an instrument that records them. It must, like an installation, be deliberate and precise, and like a performance, ephemeral and constantly changing. All of this is related, I think, to the sensation or the fact that every work is reorientation, is therefore projecting into a dream of the future. Earlier this year, I took part in a conversation on Cha with Jennifer Kwan Dobbs and Eve Tong Wen at Wendy's Subway in New York City. I read a short essay I wrote on the epistolary relationship between Cha and her mother. Here is the last paragraph of what I wrote. Is the existence of a book the consequence of watching one's mother write in her journal, then stop writing in her journal and hide the journal away? Is it the attempt to recover the imagination of the space that had to be willed into creation on the underside of violence and the imagination of what was written, including what was not and where it went? There is no recovery, only return. No end in sight, Cha writes in dictate. No ending and not a satisfactory one, one that might appease. If to appease was too much to ask for, then soothe painless, at least numb, to keep the pain from translating itself into memory. She begins each time by charting every moment, the date, the time of day, the weather, a brief notation on the events that have occurred or that are to come. She begins each time with this ablution as if this act would release her from the very antiphony to follow. She begins the search, the words of equivalence to that of her feeling or the absence of it, synonym, simile, metaphor, byword, by name, ghost word, phantom nation, in documenting the map of her journey. The extended journey, horizontal in form, in concept, from which a portion has been severed without the evidence of a mark even, except that now it was necessary to comply to the preface, extension to journey. There is no future, only the onslaught of time unaccountable, vacuous, amorphous time towards which she is expected to move forward, ahead, and somehow bypassing the present, the present redeeming itself through the grace of oblivion. How could she justify it without the visibility of the present? She says to herself she could displace real time. She says to herself she could display it before and become its voyeur. She says to herself that death would never come, could not possibly. She knowing too that there was no displacing death, there was no overcoming without the actual dying. She says to herself, if she were able to write, she could continue to live. Says to herself, if she would write without ceasing. To herself, if by writing she could abolish real time, she would live. If she could display it before her, and become its voyeur. Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. That was very beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, if anyone has questions for Brandon, 
Brandon, you can pop them into the chat. Um, Christina, we turn to you now. Christina will be sharing her screen and so will Minson. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, everyone who's here with us tonight, City Lights Bookstore, UC Press, all of you in the audience. Um, let me share my screen quickly. Sorry, you know what? I haven't done a Zoom program for a while now that we're back in real life person. Okay. Okay, back again. So um, as Linda and Peter introduced, I'm Christina Yang. Um, I'm currently working as an independent curator in New York, but until fairly recently, I was the chief curator at the Berkeley Art Museum, Pacific Film Archive, where I had an, the extraordinary opportunity to care for and live with the Teresa Chalk collection and archive for about a year. Um, of course, I you know, knew about it and knew about her work for many decades before, but it was really incredible to you know, be in the same building and you know, able to run downstairs to storage and the study center and be able to work with some of the incredible curator and educators there who knew the work so well. So for tonight, I'm gonna to read a few of Teresa's texts from Dictée and the reissued Exile Tom Mort compilation, newly published by UC Press as part of their Simpson imprint. Um, I'd like to mention that it's um, part of this uh, special edition because of the connection of the Simpson family to the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive. And it's incredible to, um, to, to read um, the words of this community that um, really championed and um, supported Teresa's work. Uh, the names like Larry Rinder and Connie Llewellyn, uh, the Simpson family, Stephanie Canizzo. I mean, these are all people that are real people and that um, have done so much to, to sustain the, the life of Teresa's work. So I'm incredibly grateful to all of them and um, we'll be mentioning some of them in my, in my talk tonight. So in this meandering but intentional narration of the intersections between Cha's life and work and my own, I'd like to probe how Cha speaks to her reader or her viewer. In particular, she speaks to, I'm highlighting uh, the, the audience of women of color and even more specifically to women writers living between Asia and its diasporas, United States coasts between California and New York, and with occasional journeys to France and to um, other parts of, of, of Europe. These places that Teresa occupied also became named in her words and work as a feeling of being an exotic other, of being situated within multiple languages and their loss and their intersectional histories, and then coming to rest in a practice between visual art, performance, film theory, and cultural studies. So not only did she name multiplicity and hybridity as part of her practice, and did she name that for all of us, but she named the intersections and the in-betweens and then the absences that get lost in between these various threads that make up the life we lead and the work that we make. Temporally speaking, Teresa Cha is 12 years older than I am. She was born in 1951 in Busan, South Korea, and I was born in 1963 in Poughkeepsie, New York. But our immigrant family histories cross over in the 1960s and 70s across China, Korea, and the Bay Area, where we both live, 
and where we both went to college at UC Berkeley. The 1980s brought us both to New York, where we began to establish ourselves within the contemporary art world. And then we both returned to Berkeley. We, I'm now saying we, uh, referring to her work as opposed to her herself. Um, but specific, specifically, we returned to the BAM PFA, where the only repository of Cha's work resides, as well as her archive of letters, preparatory works, films, and including some early ceramic works and um, other, other objects and, and ephemera. This time of her, of her postmortem return and then the life of her reputation spans the 1920s through the 2020s through to today, when two important bi-coastal curators that we've mentioned, Larry Winder, Rinder and Connie Llewellyn, sustain scholarly attention to her work. Um, as I wrap up sort of my, my part of this, uh, again, meandering journey, um, I'm gonna transition us to a new generation of artists and curators, one of whom you'll hear from tonight, Min Sun Jun, that are currently engaged in the study of her work and that um, we get a chance to hear about, you know, what really still remains fresh and what remains um, poignant about, about the practice. Okay, let's see if I can do this on Zoom. So let me read to you um, the passage from Dicte um, that in the new printed version is on page 45. And it's a passage I think that are probably is very, very familiar to many of you, but I think it bears um, rereading. Uh, Linda mentioned it in the Kathy Park Hong text and Brandon may mention to it as well. Mother, you are a child still at 18 more of a child since you are always ill. They have sheltered you from life. Still, you speak the tongue, the mandatory language like the others. It is not your own. Even if it is not, you know you must. You are bilingual, you are trilingual. The tongue that is forbidden is your own mother tongue. You speak in the dark, in the secret, the one that is yours your own. You speak very softly. You speak in a whisper. In the dark, in secret, mother tongue is your refuge. I wanted to read this passage um, and I wanted to show two images of actually my own mother. Um, my mother is pictured here on the left with my husband, um, her, I mean, my, my husband, her father. <laughs> my, I'm sorry, my father and her husband, I'm sorry. This was taken in 1956 when they were students at the University of Kentucky. They immigrated here from China in the 1950s. And then um, this photograph here on the right is of her and her three children of which I'm the one standing on the far right in the red dress. And it was taken in the 1970s in France. And the reason why I wanted to show this image is because I was looking through these photographs um, relatively recently in 2019 when I was working at the Guggenheim and working on a public program, and we had a speaker who was also a mother and was not able to travel with her children to the program. And this was a, a family vacation they had planned, um, but her passport was actually um, not an American passport. And this was during the Trump administration um, at a time when uh, mothers and fathers were being separated from their children. And in fact, we were living with another, you know, living with this in our very practice. And at the time, 
um, I remember thinking, I remember very clearly when my mother was naturalized in the 1970s, a decade, a full decade after her um, children were born and um, after her husband was also had his uh, work citizenship from, from his job. And I remember thinking, could it have been that she was actually not a citizen this whole time? And what would it have meant for her to be living in this state of precarity? And was it possible that she could have been deported from us when we were, when, you know, we were just living our lives in New York and, and in Europe and, um, you know, so unaware of the politics that were potentially swirling around us. So um, that is something I distinctly remember. Um, like Teresa, I'm fluent in French and lived there. And I lived there, I lived there when I was younger, not when I uh, was a college student. My mother had me when she was 24 and she was done with having her children at age 30. Her youngest child, my son, Tim, was born in 1969 when Teresa was starting college. I want to read um, another poem now from Exile. I don't know if you guys can see me. Um, I'm not actually on my own screen right now, but it is, um, let's see, from page 94. Um, and uh, the poem is called Le Bateau Yves. And um, ostensibly it's about a restaurant that's on, it's on Telegraph actually, on Telegraph uh, on the far south side of campus. It was not far from where I lived for three years uh, during my college years. And I, I, I didn't know actually where Teresa lived when she was in Berkeley in the, in the nine years that she was a student. So I wanna read this poem and um, just reflect upon, and you'll see, um, I have a photograph of it actually of the book page itself and then the interior of the restaurant. And, um, you know, just sort of think about the sort of magic of being in the same space that she, that she lived in and that she worked in every day and sort of how special it was to have also been a student at Berkeley and an intern um, at the University Art Museum, which was the first place that I had the chance to really imagine that I could have a life in the arts and that I could be a curator as well. Okay, so the poem starts, but the title is Le Bateau Eve Restaurant, Berkeley, 7 December, 1977, five o'clock. We pretend that she does not exist, that we did not hear her saying, I am sick, I am hungry, starving. I want Russ to take care of me and my brother is dying. And I am not thinking of Philip, that's an old affair. She has a toothpick in her mouth, he leaves her. She is crying by the candlelight in front of the lace draped windows, legs crossed, camel coat, she looks my way. So actually, if anyone in the audience or anyone on the panel actually knows who this woman is that Teresa is talking about, I would love to know because I don't know who it is. Um, and I don't, I mean, yeah, there's so much mystery involved. And yet, um, as someone who went to this restaurant and who walked by it every day, it struck me as, you know, an evocation of place that, that um, so many of us, I think, from the Bay Area recognize and that Teresa brings us to. Um, I have memory, many memories of living in Berkeley as a, as an, as a college student. And um, my colleague, Stephanie Kunitsu, who is here with us tonight, also speaks about knowing where Teresa took many of her mimeographed works to have them copied, that she would take them to the Krishna coffee shop, which is 
the same place that we still now get our labels made and um, that exist on University Avenue. Um, as many of you probably know, uh, Teresa Cha pursued four different degrees when she was at Berkeley. She started actually at San Francisco State and then transferred to Berkeley her second year in college, but she finished a Bachelor's of Art in Comp Lit in 1973, and then a Bachelor's of Art in Art in 1975, and then um, pursued two master's degrees, one an MA in 1977, then an MFA in 1978. We know that Teresa worked for three years as an usher at the Pacific Film Archive, that she worked with Bernard Augst and Augst, Augst um, and that she was profoundly influenced by French uh, structuralist filmmaking and French critical thinking and theory. Uh, and so, um, you know, she translated this all into her own experience, but, you know, there was, there was something certainly magical about uh, the space of this very, very unique museum and our film archive that, um, you know, as, some, as, a, as another student who sought um, solace there and sought inspiration, um, it was no wonder that it was also very special to Teresa. Um, from the 1990s through to very currently the 20, 2020s, once the Teresa Cha archive and collection came to the Berkeley Art Museum, the Cha family also established an undergraduate award that was given to an undergraduate either in comparative literature or in art every year and named in her honor. So again, um, I think of these you know, young students who continue to practice in this space of multidisciplinary language and visual art and in performance and in literature and um, you know, know that, uh, that Teresa's work is still with them. Um, so I was in Berkeley in the early 1980s I was a double major in history and the history of art. Um, it was an amazing time to be there. Uh, I remember Leo Steinberg and Michel Foucault coming to speak. Um, and as I mentioned, I was um, very fortunate to be an intern at the University Art Museum my senior year, which propelled me into the work that I do, that I do now. Okay, a couple more readings. Um, I wanna read a little bit from another, uh, like chapter and exile tamor called I Have Time. It's the third sort of section in that book. Um, but I also very much wanted to have us look at this typewritten page that is in the archive of the Teresa Cha collection and really look at the different ways in which she mobilized text. Thank you, Linda, for putting the book up. <laughs> um, it, what I find so incredible is um, her attention to, you know, the lowercase alphabet, you know, this running stream of consciousness of language. I love seeing her very controlled cursive handwriting at the bottom, you know, this like somewhat um, smooth and well-shaped ways in which the Roman alphabet is, is um, you know, written in cursive. But I'm also really taken by her scratch outs, you know, the scratch outs and, uh, the all caps sometimes when she's replaced a word. And there's really something, um, people talk so much about her voice in performance as being such the compelling aspect of her, um, of her live presence. But there's something about her handwriting and about her, the mark on the page that strikes me um, as particularly, uh, you know, it, feel, it feels that there's a presence there that, um, that, uh, that speaks to me. 
And, and so, um, I mean, I'm transitioning here now to thinking about her time in New York and thinking about the time, uh, the way in which her work speaks to the reader and really invites her audience to see themselves at, in her work. Um, so I'll read this passage that I'm not reading in its entirety, but um, you know, you can go to uh, when, you, when you get the book yourself and have a chance to read itself. So I'm gonna start with, let me see where on the page it is, page 125. Um, 125. So it starts in the third paragraph, at the, at the top of the third paragraph. This is my home. This is my knee. He said this in one breath. At least there was no difference in the value of these two things, my home and my knee. It feels the same sharpness as his wind rising the empty rooms, a low hum and echo. Oh, sorry. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Would you read this? Would you read my book when it's finished? And then a little further down. This is the essay. This is the fiction. This is the poetry. This is the novel. This is the writing you have been waiting for. Keep it covered. Say that it is strange. That's enough, enough for me. Didn't you tell me not to read Camus because the young students were committing suicide? Didn't you tell me the young students were committing suicide? Were you afraid? I already knew. It's possible actually that there's my typos in what I've written here in the PowerPoint, but it's also possible that um, I was copying directly from the text itself. And that's sort of the magic of Christine, of, I'm sorry, of uh, Teresa's writing is that the repetition and the ellipses and the lack of, the, the, the um, lack of capitals is both this control and stream of consciousness at the same time. I think what Brandon was talking about is being the precision and the ephemerality of her work. Um, Connie Llewellyn writes about Teresa's work that there's no firm distinction between visual and linguistic practices. And so I innately think of Connie when I think about Teresa Cha because of her incredible um, retrospective exhibition, The Dream of the Audience, um, that really put together in a, a very similar to Teresa's style. You know, Connie was a very clear thinking curator, very rational, but she worked with the most progressive artists you can ever think of. You know, artists working in performance, artists working in conceptual art, artists in the Bay Area. Okay, um, I think I'm going to read one more text. Um, and this is from a uh, surplus novel. And um, just bring our attention to these uh, beautiful, fragile objects that uh, Teresa Chan made, but also to um, her, her, actually her identity as an Asian woman. Um, let me see, I'm gonna read this one actually from, this is a spread actually from the Dream of the Audience catalog, which I like actually better, I will say, than the, um, what was, uh, what you see in Exilate Tom Moore, because you can actually see the two side-by-side side, uh, dishes that she created for her brother and her sister, for Bernadette and for James. Um, and it shows both poems um, right next to each other. So let me read just the first text. They calling me, they calling after me. Hey, Yoko. Hey, Yoko Ono. Yoko Ono, Yoko Ono. I ain't your, I ain't no, I ain't. Your Yoko Ono. I just want to, I just want to be the wife, 
the wife of the shoeshine man, shoeshine man, come dawn, come dusk, shine, shoe shine, shine. They all say, please, please take care of yourself. Yourself, baby, you are all you got. I know, don't I know? I just want to be the wife of the shoe shine man. So I'm going to end here, um, but mention that uh, when, um, oh, okay, mention that I moved to New York in 1989, uh, but spent time in 1986, 87, 88 in New York. And then I was working actually at the Whitney Museum in the 1990s as a publicist and wrote the press release for Larry Rinder's 1993 show, which Min Soon John included and excavated for her show at Bard's Hessel Museum. The Chaw Collection archive was given to the BAM PFA. It was finalized and approved in 1993. And when I arrived in November of 2021 as a chief curator, there were uh, two pending loan requests that came in from the Whitney Museum to include a collection of Chaw's work in the Whitney Biennial. And then there was a loan request from the Hessel Museum for Min Soon John's show. So um, I was very fortunate, again, to work with my colleagues, uh, John Alexander in the collections department, Stephanie Canizzo, and with our registrar, Laura Graziano, to approve and facilitate those loans and really think about the balance of work that was going to be shown in New York in two major, major presentations. The independent curator, Jacob Krasinski, and the experimental dance artist, Jimmy Roberts, also came to visit Berkeley in the summer and spring of 2022. And they are also working on a new project that will probably come to life in 2024 at the Participant Gallery. So I'm gonna close with reading um, a short reflection that was written by a young curator named Indira Abiscaron that just came out in the Evergreen Review that was um, a similar personal narration of, uh, of her experience of the Whitney Biennial, Teresa, uh, of the Whitney Biennial and Teresa, Teresa Chas section. It was sort of like a mini exhibition within a much larger exhibition and it's called Missing a Mother Tongue. She concludes her review by saying, I spend more time with Cha than any other artist that afternoon. I forgive myself and plan to come back here before the exhibition closes. Unclench your jaw. It's less easy to forgive myself for projecting so much on Cha, whose absence has enabled her audience to demand so much too much. Thank you. So I think I'm going to hand that off to Min Soon, who's going to bring us to the present. Thanks, Christina. Thanks, Christina. First of all, thanks so much for having me tonight. It feels always like a privilege to be able to talk about Cha's work. And I want to express my deepest gratitude to Rhys Williams, John Cha, Stephanie Canicho, and Christina Yang among many others, for their trust in my research and for their generosity. And but like most importantly, like everyone else here today, I'm deeply inducted to Cha, whose visionary work has transformed our way of thinking. And thanks to their tremendous support, as Christina mentioned, this spring I organized Cha solo exhibition, Teresa Hakyong Cha Audience Distant Relative, which was on view at the Hassel Museum of Art Center for Treacherous Study, Art College in New York. 
So Cha's multifaceted conceptual practice has left an important legacy that has yet to be fully recognized, which prompted this exhibition. Cha has often been recognized either as a writer or a filmmaker. So rather than focusing on one specific medium, presenting a range of Cha's works spanning male art, video and audio works, unfinished films, a multi-channel installation, performance documentation, and works on paper from the late 1970s and to the early 1980s. The exhibition aimed to highlight the ways in which Cha further broke down boundaries between artistic medium while making marking the specific, specific properties of each forming an indissoluble whole. While Cha's work draws heavily on her own recollection and grapples with the notion of identity, it cannot be essentialized into filling any single frame, such as race, ethnicity, nationality, or gender. Her deep understanding of the materiality of diverse mediums that she used enabled her to resist a single categorical reading or discipline in art and to realize the complexity of her diaspora experience. Through her practice, she separated and fractured identity and its relationship to the language that one speaks, thinks, and dreams. It was related to the question I've had for a long time. Why is an artist like Chao, who sits within the specific coordinates of identity, often reduced and essentialized? Why are cultural specificities highlighted more than universal questions she's asking in her work? Why is her work read through her biography? Why do many contemporary artists today respond or react to her legacy? Title of my show, Audience Distant Relative, which was drawn from Cha's 1977 male art piece with my cultural gesture to these questions. So this was the installation shot. So when the audience first walked into the space, they encountered this male art piece, an audio piece with the same title. While most male art is sent to a very specific recipient, usually for artistic exchange among the community, this piece is addressed to an anonymous audience whom Cha would never meet. Not only do the properties of male signify the spatial distance between Cha and her audience, but they also mark the temporal distance through the letter and its accompanying audio piece in which Cha's voice quietly narrates the text with echoes. The audience encounters an intimate like intimate message caught in between time and space, which create intimacy between visitor and child. The work reflects the artist's exploration of the possibility and the limits of communication between sender and the receiver, as well as the subject and object. The fluidity of the relationship between artist's work and the audience is a defining motive in Chad's practice. And I wanted to I wanted like visitors to be ready to form their own relationship with Chad's work. In her MFA thesis passed from 1978, Cha highlighted the critical role of the viewer as a receptor and the activator of her work. Cha wrote, and I quote, the viewer holds the position as a complement, an avenue through multiple interpretations, gives multiple dimensions to the work. If the work has a strength, this is very subjective. The renewal and the regenerating process could be eliminable. In keeping with her statement, Cha's work remained potent. There has been a constant revisiting of her work. In all her work, Cha suggests a contingent relation between herself, the work, and the audience. This male art piece reflects her sense of the fluidity and complexity of these relations. As is evident from the title, the audience to which Cha refers is like a distant relative, 
can be seen, only heard, only through someone else's description. You and I can communicate via email in the hope that one can connect to another from a distance. In her 1980s statement of plans, in which Cha describes her idea for a narrative books that was never realized, titled Why Does from Mongolia, the relationship between Cha and the viewer across the time and space is further illuminated. The images and language emerge from sources that are highly personal in that there are accounts from memory, my personal memory, as well as the viewer's memory. Therefore, hopefully a collective reminiscing. These given instances in time attempts as a catalyst to evoke other moments in the viewer's memory that bridge the viewer and myself in dialogue, said Cha. The collective reminiscing of, Cha, of which Cha speaks underscores her view that work becomes complete when an intimate encounter exists between herself and the viewer. Cha seems to call upon viewer's personal unconscious memory to activate the work fully. Teresa Hakim just 1978, three channel video installation, Passages, Passage was another centerpiece of my exhibition. First shown as a part of her MFA thesis exhibition at the University Art Museum in Berkeley back then, Passages, Passage attempts to break the passive hypnotic apparatuses of cinema by undermining its linear narrative structure. The work is composed of dissolved and faded words, still images and narration in two different languages, Korean and English. The image consists of her childhood photos and artist's hands, stacks of letters, landscapes, rooms, and an unmade bed. Words in French and English also appears as images and physical properties. The three monitors sometimes show the same image and sometimes different ones. The use of multiple screen in asynchronous narration in two languages and their seemingly unrelated dynamics with image points to how meaning and narrative are produced altered and diversified. It also relates, reflects the transition of time and its effect on memory, which Cha has explored across her work. Illuminating our fragmented memories of the past and longing for their retrieval, Cha complicates cultural ideas of memory through methods that divert and scatter the viewer's attention. The metaphor metaphoric and atmospheric expression defies one fixed meaning and encourages the viewer to access their unconscious memory. It questions the possibility of certitude, complicating cultural ideas of time, space, language, and memory, as well as identity, to suggest multiplicity of subjectivities and narrative, which permeates her multiform oeuvre. Chas' work needs to be reassessed in more complex and comprehensive way. It resists subjugation into rigid like categories, artistic genre, and fixed identity and a single like narrative. Her use of poetic and abstracted language and the aesthetic in her work precludes such reductive reading. Abstraction in my use is synonymous with the refusal of rigid categorization. Cultural specificities are intertwined with the universal question, including but not limited to language, communication, memory, resulting in the impossibility of confining work within one narrative or truth. The translucent material used in my exhibition design were not only to place the spectator in the position of the active, like active agent by staging the cinematic viewing condition, but also to show how the different forms of work should be seen as interconnected and as a whole. All of her process like ultimately like points to the ways in which she intended to open up myriad ways of seeing and reading her work. 
despite such complexity within just practice, both in form and contents, an expanded reading of our work has often been under-recognized and overlooked. Since her tragic death in 1982, there have been a number of attempts to understand and read her practice. The focus of these reviews and discursive ground that they generated by critics, scholars, creators, vary based on the social, political, and historical perspectives of the authors. This tendency often leaves out just intention, preventing viewers from fully engaging with her work in multivalent ways. Thus, her attempt to evoke the viewer's unconscious association can hardly be fulfilled under these circumstances. It is interesting to think about the primacy of intention against her plurality of interpretation to me. In the 1970s, her work was mostly discussed in terms of former experimentation in the context of Bay Area avant-garde art scene, and feminist theory was the dominant frame for reading her work in the 1980s. Since the early 1990s, Cha's identity as a Korean-American has been highlighted in reading her work, which dismisses the tension Cha empathizes between the particular and the universal, and the between personal and collective. In this regard, her employment of nuanced and complex interplay of form and contents has often been set aside. And sometimes these qualities in her literary works are considered properties of minority literature. The dominant paradigms of each era have led to a partial understanding of Cha's work. The center thirst of the exhibition was to problematize the limit of single paradigm in understanding her work. Dicta, Cha's most well-known books was also presented as an object as well. The complexity and ambivalence of dicta, which lies in its oscillation between seemingly personal memory and historical nar narrative, attachment and detachment from memory have made it very difficult to locate in one particular genre. Through the story of martyrs and Cha's mother, alongside a montage of her family photographs, a map, diagram, photocopies of handwritten notes and letters and the grainy photos, the work draws out the artist's own memories and yet anonymize them at the same time. The former experimentation with language and the convergence of diverse cultural influence in dicta given rise to multiple interpretations over time. When it was first published, the book was only recognized and read by a small group of white avant-garde artists and feminist writer and faded into oblivion until the late 1980s. Afterward, the popularization of multiculturalism led to reassessment of Cha's dicta, which culminated in the narrowing of her practices, Koreanness, overshadowing the other quality in her work. At the beginning of 1990s, Dicta received attention from scholars in Asian American studies. The book was ignored for a decade after its publication by Asian American critics and readers, mainly because it was too experimental and could not be placed in the pre-existing Asian American literary canon at the time. It seemed that some scholars focused on the part that Dicta that had, they considered her autobiographical and historical narrative, particularly within concerns of cultural nationalism at the expense of the non-narrative parts of the book, like for such as Erato. It is around this time that Dicta was suddenly seen as a part of the shift in understanding Asian American writing. Although such an argument brought generative discussion and suggests a new paradigm of Asian American literature, the complexity of just work and diaspora experience reaches beyond Korea. While the prevailing opinion was that Cha's racial, ethnic, gender, and national identity should remain exclusive. Since the early 2000s, some critics started to recognize that the critical reception of Cha's addicta in the 1990s was primarily based on political ideological discourse, this thing that we, I think we need to unpack a little bit later. But at the same time, her, however, her visual practice was slowly recuperated by complex and probing inquiries. 
secured by worldwide COVID pandemic, hate crimes against Asians in the United States have like surged. Asian Americans have been murdered, verbally and physically assaulted. This recent circumstances call attention to the question of monolithic Asian American identity. A question that has been raised among Asian American art critic is, can a loose identity category invented in the 96, uh, 1960s address the specific lived experience of individuals who have undergone increased violence against Asian American? Scrapping Cha's work into category of Asian American arts is the same kind of essentialization that Cha resisted and should be seriously contested, in my opinion. Her own artistic intention to recount the specificities of Korean history and culture in her work is not an attempt to claim a Korean or Korean American identity, but it has more to do with her questioning memories. Likewise, her use of Korean language in her work should be discussed in terms of relationship to language that resulted from her diaspora experience. A deeper investigation into the nature of linguistic and communication theory should be taken into consideration as well. Within this context, her biography and her tragic deaths continue to be emphasized. For instance, in January this year, this year the New York Times published the article as a series of obituary that reads, I mean, remarkable people whose deaths went under unreported in the Times. Although the article attempted to illustrate how Cha was engaged in diverse medium and to provide a description of several works, they primarily highlighted her biography and the literary work decay only. In this article, one of the captions stated that, and I quote, in addition to the writing, she dabbled in performance art, which understates Cha's serious involvement with performance art as well. In 2020, as Christina mentioned, in New York City, the most, like there has been a lot of program and exhibition that focus on Cha's work have been presented, including Whitney by 2022, Whitney by Neil, and my exhibition as well. During the, this resurgence of interest in Cha, it is critical to recognize the complexity of her work. The rich, complex layers of meaning in her work can be, cannot be reduced to one theoretical or social discourse or to her identity. Instead of pigeonholing Cha, it is imperative that we recognize how the strength of our body of works and the force of resisting categorization itself has created a set of coordinates or in other words, new positionality. It will grow and expand over time. What can and cannot be shared is one of her central questions in her work, which invites open-ended interpretation and jogs its audience memory. As Cha wished, her work will be regenerated with new narrative if we allow the audience to fully encounter. Thank you so much. Thank you, that was very thought provoking. And I could see Brandon was also scribbling while you were speaking. So um, instead of me asking you questions, I'll ask Brandon to speak next in conversation with the two of you. Um, yeah, I was scribbling so many things. I, I think, regenerative and and work that is regenerating is something now that i'm is one of the many things that i scribbled down if the work has the strength the renewal and regenerating processes could be illimitable i think that was one of the first of cha's quotes that you read um yes i don't really have a question but i <laughs> i think one of the things that has compelled me the most and also that i've like set against my own feeble attempts to be a poet, writer, artist, etc., is this idea of producing work that has the capacity to regenerate. And maybe thinking about 
um, your curatorial work and spending so much time putting that putting that work together in relation to um, itself. Like, what is your sense of how that regenerative quality works? Like, how is that something that was able to be like created into the work, if that makes sense? Um. I don't know if I understand your question like correctly, but like, <laughs> yeah. no, it's my fault. But, but um, well, because you because you mentioned re the regenerative quality twice. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And it's like how yeah how how does how does that work? How is that made? Because like she yeah I mean for, like when I was like thinking about this exhibition at the beginning like I didn't want to frame her work in a I didn't want to guide audience into very specific frame so I my input was like let her work like be re regenerated by this very itch encounter with the audience so that was like my very important like the most important like aspect when I was thinking about creating this exhibition so her voice should be at the center for me and then will be regenerated when there is a very intimate encounter between her work and audience and herself itself. So this, for instance, the sonic, the soundscape was very important also in the space because I want like audience to feel really close to her work. And then as she said, it's like also there should be a like through multiple interpretations that will be gen that was generated by the very like very diverse encounter based on audience lived experience or their own like knowledge about child. So very there was a varying degree of understanding of our work and it was a very different story that was like really made through this exhibition, which I believe that happened. So I just wanted to open the possibility of this multiple, multiple regenerations through this exhibition. I don't know if that makes sense. I, I have a question for all three of you or anyone who wants to engage, maybe no one will, but um, I was talking about Dicte with two friends who've been teaching it at UC Davis and shamanism and the Catholicism and her high school education in San Francisco came up and I haven't heard too many people speak about that. Um, the, the whole martyrology aspect, the liturgical aspect, um, yeah, so I'm just wondering if, if anyone has either biographical or artistic comments on that. Again, we, we don't have, we don't have discussion of that. I'm just, I didn't know that she had gone to the Sacred Heart School in San Francisco until Saturday night when <laughs> I heard it. Um, I have another question because I see a, a bunch of poets here, some friends of mine. Um, and uh, as I said, I wasn't the art history uh, editor, I was the poetry editor. And I think I really published it as such in a way. And I know the influence on some of the poets here has been great. So if anybody wants to talk about that. Um, let's see. So I'm actually still thinking about Brandon's question a little bit mm. about, um, you know, how I'm actually, well, when you ask the question, for I mean, I, I actually thought of Teresa's um, 
uh, I'm going to say her poetry, but it's actual more her um, visual poetry. And it seems to me that like when she, you know, in, I mean, she's so intentional about the form that her invitation to a reader comes to you. If it's coming to you as a letter, it's already engaging, you know, it's already engaging its own kind of discourse and it's already like life is built into it, you know, in, in, this, in this way. And then um, because of her formality, the, the formality that she thinks of language. So because there's so many empty spaces between her words, there's already, there's, I mean, I mean, an emptiness is when the reader or the viewer fills that space. And so, so I feel like it's, it's because she thinks of language as a visual object and she thinks of, you know, uh, poetry as a conversation that, that, there, that, there's, that the reader and the audience is always there. And so therefore it, it continues to live. And so, so, and I think that's, that, that's just like a very, you know, formal reading, formal reading of, of, her, of her strategy. And, and so I, I mean, I would love to hear more about like about your, about your own work and, and about, you know, and, and are you, are, in, in what way you're thinking about, um, about, you know, a kind of regenerative practice, you know, through language or through language and visuality. Um, and I guess, I guess, you know, thinking about Linda's question about, um, you know, her interest in uh, like, I mean, I guess I, you know, your question would have to do with, with female martyrs, but I actually, I feel like her interest, um, like especially in dictate with um, feminine histories is, 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 is really almost like looking at, at different heroines, you know, spiritual heroines. I don't know, I don't know if it's so much about the way in which these Joan of Arc died, St. Teresa of Lisieux, you know, I mean, these were just, uh, you know, women who were so convicted of their own, you know, passions that, that they committed their life to it. So, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think Minsoon is right that there's still so much about her work that's yet to be, yes. you know, completely um, read into carefully. Yes. Um, yes. And I don't know if, 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 I mean, we have so many people in the audience that have likely studied her work and, um, our practitioners themselves that that uh, um, I would be happy to hear from them. So, you know what what some of their comments might be. Uh, I don't know if we're. I'll, I'll read a comment that just came okay, up. Okay, great. From Sophie Terazawa, yes, and please unmute your. I think you can. I'm not sure, um, but I'll read this comment because I think it's very interesting. Um, I wonder if we are moving around a question of how Cha's work lives next to spirit work and ongoing ritual. Maybe the text as an object of time, like a clock, clock, uh, thinking about this marker, or the chime of a bell. Thank you for all this beautiful thinking. And then Michael Stone Richard says, yes, Chad draws upon ideas of potency and martyrs, all the women. Yes, um, Christina, you are addressing that in dictate or martyrs in some sense. So yeah, Minson, when you were talking, I was thinking, okay, what is the next, the regeneration, the next level of interpretation and I'm, I'm thinking Christina not just of those individual women in the text but also just the liturgical uh, language and uh, I'm, I have nothing to say about it except questions really. um, 
and uh, we're getting up to about the time. Uh, let's see, definitely regeneration as someone who can regrow what hegemony cuts off, amputates, silences, yeah. Um, and uh, anyone else want to say anything or ask anything? We have these beautiful books for sale at City Lights. Um, I see that Elaine Kim is here or was here and just want to appreciate her scholarship too. Um, and I think that's that's everything. Thank you so much, Christina, Minsun, Brandon, City Lights, and Juliet Lee and Asian American Writers Workshop. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.